Hi, I'm Angie Brown and you are listening to the Being Luminary podcast. The podcast where I sit down with everyday but by no means ordinary thought leaders to talk about being luminary in life and in work. Welcome back, friends, to another episode of the Being Luminary podcast. And today you have part two of who knows how many parts is what I'm going to say of my conversation with my good friend and colleague in this space, Claire Stewart-Hall. So Claire introduced herself in um, part one, which we recorded last week. But for those of you who weren't listening last week, Claire, I'm going to hand over to you to introduce yourself again. Hello, uh, I'm Claire Stewart-Hall. I'm a researcher and coach and a former educationalist and I run an organisation called Equitable Coaching, where I work at the intersections around diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, and my PhD focuses on majoritised whiteness in organisations. That's what I kind of mine and, and where I um, mostly, what I mostly read about and research. Thank you very much. So in our last conversation, you asked me lots of questions about my origin story, which was really interesting for me and lovely to have a conversation with you. It felt like there were some more questions that were still to be asked that we didn't get to. Mm. Maybe some more will emerge out of today's conversation. I don't know what you're going to ask me, so I'm just going to hand back over to you and let's see where we go. <laughs> Marvellous. Okay. I did want to pick up on on some of the things that you said in the the um, earlier podcast in part one that's how I'm seeing this um, and one of the things that you talked about and you you regularly talk about is the kind of notion or idea of breadcrumbs leading you forwards and in evolution and I I, I thought there may be lots of uh, roles I wanted to talk job roles mm. and roles that you've uh, taken and um I wondered to think about them as, as breadcrumbs, really. You work internationally, uh, but I was also thinking about roles that you've led a PRU, you've run a virtual school, you've set up lots of groups around exclusion and transformed lots of the spaces that you're in. And I wondered if you could talk about the breadcrumbs of those roles that have kind of led you here. Mm, I love that question. Um, I do talk about breadcrumbs a lot and the roles that I have had have been a trail of breadcrumbs leading me to here. But I've always managed to feel as though they were not like the, the role I'm in now isn't one of the breadcrumbs is how I've always felt. <laughs> so all the other ones have been a trail of breadcrumbs, but except this one, this one feels completely random. And uh and it's only in hindsight that I realised, oh, yeah, that was also one of the roles that was a trail of breadcrumbs. I found it was really helpful to other people when I started talking about the trail of breadcrumbs uh, leading me forwards, but also helping me to understand life in reverse. So holding the notion that there are so many things in our lives that then appear as a trail of breadcrumbs has been a really good way of evaluating things that have happened to me and bringing reflective practice 
and self-coaching into my work. It's one of the things that I really offer people, I offer as a, as a strategy for people to use. Um, so I would say that the, the initial roles that I had uh, when I first started teaching were, were very much talked about the context of the school that we were working in very much framing this outlook that I was then going to completely immerse myself in 25 years later and kind of where I find myself now because the environment forced me to look through so many different lenses all the time and not everybody that works in that environment maybe felt the same way but I immediately felt that way influenced in large part by you by other people that worked in the organisation who also saw through those many lenses uh, of the different young people that worked in that, that came to the school, of the, the different perspectives on school that people who lived in the community had also. And I think that that use of many lenses and that kind of um, need to be really flexible in response to what was coming our way every day has just been the best foundation I could have ever had in terms of then becoming a head teacher and then in terms of running my own business. So there are lots of different things about those, but the sort of early roles that really helped, um, helped me out in terms of where I am now. There's something about being an English teacher, which I think is also really critical. So when I look back on being an English teacher, and as you said last week, layering different approaches to texts for example has helped me understand that the way I work is to layer different approaches to ideas or to theories or to situations as a as a practitioner and so that was a really you know English teachers I think do that really well I think that's a huge part of our practice but English teaching is also about for, for me has been about the importance of communication, the beauty of communication, the kind of exquisite nature of nuance in communication. And so that that sticks with me also. And then I had some very early roles in that school. So I was a I was leading, I had a, had a wasn't they weren't called TLRs, they were called recruitment and retention points or something like that, I think, in the day. Um, and I had one of those that was associated with diversity, equity, inclusion right at the beginning of my career. Um, and I went on to become an assistant head in that school, working with young people who were um, who had been marginalised by the school system and trying to reframe the idea that they were hard to reach and really help the institution understand that the institution was hard to reach. Um, for many of our families. And from that, I thought I was taking a really maverick role by stepping out of the of mainstream school and taking my practice into alternative provision. And I remember talking to you about it when the role came up and thinking, oh, this is going to be the end of my career because once you leave mainstream, who mm. knows what's going to happen? Will you ever get back in? Mm-hmm. Um, and and really fearing what might happen if I if I left mainstream education, I went right out into the margins, into alternative provision, into running a pupil referral service, and um, co-leading 
a school for children with what was described at the time as behavioural, emotional and social difficulties. And uh, it solidified my, my passion for working in liminal spaces and my level of calm, actually, that is created in working in some of those spaces because there's a real power out there in the liminal space. It gives you a real perspective on what's happening in mainstream settings. It was a really great opportunity to feel like I was allied to people who were marginalised for so many different reasons. It was a great opportunity to not have race be the dominating factor in exclusion from mainstream environments because actually I was working with families who as a consequence of poverty and the way that the class system operates in the UK and the way that poverty in, in, impacts upon families with with uh, with young people who have uh, special educational needs and disabilities were excluded and that allyship that level of of um, involvement in their families at really critical and meaningful moments when a child has been excluded from a mainstream school being with them on that threshold between what it means to be in and what it means to be out was really has just re- remained with me such a powerful uh, partnership on that threshold such a moment to demonstrate your humanity to have other people recognize your humanity to be in service of people who are at the you know on their knees that role more than any other role helped me understand what policies mean to people Um, and I keep saying you know it keeps coming up in my work now when you tell me that policies are dusty and they sit on a shelf you you clearly have never worked in a setting in which parents have had children who have special educational needs and disabilities because I'm telling you those policies don't sit on a shelf and they're not dusty they are really meaningful to people when they are on that threshold between what it means to be in and what it means to be out Mm. and in that role I got to witness um, what exclusion really means and when we talk about exclusion in the school system we're talking about the kind of physical removal of a child from a mainstream setting and the placing of them in an alternative provision. Mm. But exclusion has so many more powerful psychological ramifications for people and for their families. Things that they can't even bring into their conversations with their friends, things that they dare not speak about for fear of what it means uh, beyond school. What does it mean? Are you going to talk to social services? Does it mean that we're going to be involved with the police? Does it mean our name is going to be on a record somewhere? There are so many other layers of what it means to be excluded. And I think that feeling sense with people of exclusion has stuck with me into the other roles that I have that I've gone on to do. That role really shored me up to, to, um, to take on the role of, of a head teacher of a mainstream Steiner school, an estate-funded Steiner school, sorry. Uh, I don't think it could ever have been described as mainstream, <laughs> but um, it was um, it was a role that was pretty well maligned when I was about to take it mm. because people have very strong views about Steiner education 
only this week I was on Twitter and somebody was kind of eye rolling about the dangers of Steiner education. And I thought, how interesting that there is still this narrative that they're going to do something to your children. Um, and as, as the very person who, or a representative of the very group of people that Steiner in his work uh, and very much of his time um, undermined and discriminated against, you know, he had some very of his time views about race, for example. I felt like I cut quite a liminal figure in that space as well, surrounded by head teachers of mainstream schools and being the one who is the head teacher of the odd odd school set in the middle of East Bristol surrounded by you know on a campus of a lot of beauty surrounded by an area of um both increasing wealth but also multiple deprivation factors kind of um alerted in that area as well so again, lots of opportunities to experience what it means to be an insider, what it means to be an outsider. And in that role, I was head teacher of a school that I was in which I was very much the outsider. And I know that colleagues thought this is kind of career suicide. You know, what's she doing? What's she doing now? And once again, that role gave me an opportunity to hear about experiences of being um, excluded from mainstream school settings and not because children were being told that they couldn't come to those to, to mainstream schools but because I as head teacher of the Steiner school found myself meeting parents on a daily basis who felt like the school they were sending their child to just didn't meet their their child's needs just couldn't meet their child's needs and they were again on their knees but for different reasons really really putting all of their faith and hope in this new school this different school this alternative way of educating to provide them with a sense that that their child was not at deficit but that maybe the system was at deficit and uh and that role was another motley crew of staff so i feel like i've done these roles that have been about gathering people who have different experiences and who bring different skills and who are not always the best teacher and not always the best teaching assistant and not always the best administrator, but were people that were really willing to give it a go. So it was a it was a really interesting leadership role. And I left that school just after having my, I actually started my headship at that school with a, um, while I was pregnant and, and left that school when my son was about four. Um, and it was actually my pregnancy and parenting him at the same time as being a head teacher which gave me another one of those breadcrumbs the how do women do this how on earth are we supposed to lead an organization mm. and be in charge of a family how on earth are we supposed to spread ourselves this thinly and be successful so I had a real opportunity to challenge my own narratives about success and uh, what it means to be a successful woman uh, in that role. And I use all of that wisdom <laughs> now when I talk to people who are punishing themselves for trying to do things that are way too ambitious, really, in the human spirit. Um, and, the, and that role, that, that 
liminal role led me to hand in my notice actually at a point of, of desperation and just say I, I wasn't you know I wasn't able to do it I wasn't able to be a parent and and also be a leader at the same time and I think I was out of work for about a week and the in the in the in the sort of week between handing my notice and feeling like oh this is fantastic I can do anything I like uh somebody I'd worked with previously who was a CEO of a trust said don't suppose you'd be interested in taking on a headship would you and it was a headship of a mainstream school and it answered all of the questions that I had been asking in the previous roles about whether I had damaged my career, whether it had been career suicide to step out of mainstream settings. But also all of that time outside of mainstream settings led me to reconsider what it would mean to be a head teacher in a mainstream setting. And in this kind of caretaker role of a year, I had this in incredible opportunity to reinvent myself as a leader of a mainstream school with no history, with a kind of liminal past, right in the centre of uh, South Gloucestershire, <laughs> in a school in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a fantastic large school in, uh, on the outs in the outskirts of Bristol. And it was the kind of role that I never believed I was capable of having because it was the kind of role that I had always seen filled by people who didn't look like me. And it was the kind of school that I imagined would never be the home for somebody who looked like me. Um, so I challenged all of my uh, preconceptions about the kind of role that black women head teachers take up when I, when I took on that role. And I also challenged the ideas I had about where I can be of service in that role, having previously always often played into the narrative that I am of service when I recognise the experience of being marginalised and with those communities who are marginalised, I give of myself to support, to work with, to, to stand shoulder to shoulder. And while not willing to undermine any of that, there was something about that interim headship that I did that year that just reminded me that I'm of service wherever I am and for whoever sees me. And so for a majority white, a majoritized white school, white young people who were from South Gloucestershire, who were local, local to the school, seeing this black head teacher as their head teacher for the year was something that I really, I'm so proud. I'm so excited about the opportunities, about the new neurons that are fired in those situations. And lots of the challenges that we had with race, of which there were a few, not, not, not tons, were great opportunities to kind of start different conversations. Um, yeah, so, so that's, that, that was the, those were the headships that I'd, that I'd taken on. And then I, I stayed in that trust and, and was an interim deputy CEO for, for a year. Um, and, and in that role, worked, worked across the primary schools, got to really understand primary practice and just how brilliant primary head teachers are, quite frankly. Um, understand some of the differences in the system between secondary the ways that secondary schools operate and primary schools operate and really looking back at the end of that period where I had a great I was given great license to coach the the head teachers in the trust and to work in different ways in the trust to just look at the arc of different things that I'd done and recognize that I'd worked in in an all through school in a special school in a pupil referral service in a primary school in a secondary school I'd led across 
settings in rural Wiltshire, in semi-rural South Gloucestershire, in urban centre of Bristol. And all of this had felt like I was doing this kind of disparate work. And yet all of it just kind of, as I looked back, was like this incredible grounding in, in how we work, how we build communities in schools, in all these different kinds of schools, how we work towards improving the quality of relationships between people. So it was definitely a trail of breadcrumbs and has led me very nicely to where I now am in the middle of the Baltic Sea. <laughs> Denmark, in Denmark. <laughs> where you live, and, and of course, I knew you in the what watched you in these evolutions of yourself, and um, you know, when I think about, I, I said in the in the part one of the podcast, I talked about you and asked you a question about your incredible work output and how you, you know, you don't just lead whilst pregnant with a you know and then with newborn child there's also a huge transformation of the estate so you were given a university campus that needed transformation in order to become a Steiner school so it wasn't as if somebody handed over a Steiner school it had to be there were there was building work there were you know there were there was an enormous restructuring and it meant you you weren't Steiner trained and so you became Steiner trained so again the kind of layers and layers and layers of learning that went with that time in order to serve is um you know just have to kind of demarcate the <laughs> usual headship and I guess I saw you do the same thing when you were um at the center point really in South Gloucester around exclusion where you set up different groups around exclusion and created some infrastructure in terms of systems and processes that could mm. I guess I don't know create some checks and balances around five-year-olds who are being excluded from schools mm. do you want to say anything about those <laughs> uh, the systems and processes I guess that underpin that make I guess make a reality the diversity and equity and inclusion mm. that we talk about yeah it makes me quite emotional actually to think about it because I forget that I've done all of these things and mm -hmm. um when I got to South Gloucestershire, so the, the first of the roles when I was head teacher of the Pupil Referral Service, I found that, that, that the service was full of staff who, had, who, had, who really experienced exclusion because they were working in the Pupil Referral Service in some of the most poorly, poorly kind of funded situations in some of the, in some of the worst building stock that the local authority had. Isn't it interesting that the service itself... Mm. Becomes yeah. marginalised. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And, and absolutely peopled with people who felt like they could no longer teach in mm. mainstream schools or they couldn't go back to mainstream schools because they'd ended up in the service. So every one of our units was pushed to the edge of a town in South Gloucestershire, was in some strange temporary accommodation. We were using sort of old or faulty or broken equipment often, really trying to fight for funding to just offer the service. And it felt like people were really down on their luck and really down on themselves. So there were a few jobs to do. One of them was about creating an identity. I mean, I spent ages just on 
what do we even what do we represent on things like what is the brand of this all schools have a logo we don't really what what are we mm. what, what what it was actually called when i first when i got to that service was it was called the education other than at school service it was known as eotas the education other than at school service and that was it that was its that was its identity other than at school so it was really important to me that we called it something that it had a name and that that was a place that people went to that children went to a place not just other than the thing that you used to go to that everybody recognizes and that staff felt that they went somewhere that they go to work in a place that they go and they exist in something that has its own identity and that's what they pin themselves to the values and the vision of that place mm. there were so many deficits about that system and um, that broke my heart when i got there um and those those feel like quite surface things to me they go quite deep they run quite deep identity and place and location and making location and place attractive and inviting and feeling like somebody's looked after it and somebody cares and of course the other thing was just dealing with the sheer volume of people who were being excluded from the schools and um having worked in the special school that was also in the, in the same in the same um county noticing that by luck or by sheer brilliance hard work tenacity some young people had what was called a, a statement at the time um and and others didn't and some of the ones that did managed to get into a special school a newly built special school we had incredible interiors lovely infrastructure really well trained staff and some people by absence of luck or tenacity or brilliance didn't have a statement of special needs so they ended up being excluded from schools and were just in and out of the pru and i could see no difference between these children i was like i can see some of the really extreme reasons that certain children needed to be in a special school but ultimately i'm looking at a similar group of young people who are finding schools really hard to reach who are finding getting purchase on our mainstream classrooms really difficult terribly vulnerable um fragile um souls little ones who just can't make it work for whatever reason who we can't make it work for for whatever reason and those reasons are not to be undermined because a class of 30 and continual disruption is exhausting and we know this as teachers who have worked in those classrooms and yet there were no checks there were no checks and balances so somebody somebody was being excluded one day because they uh, pulled the trousers down and mooned at the head teacher five day exclusion out that's it somebody else is being excluded uh, because they set fire to something somebody else is being excluded because they used the f word with it it's like it was completely mm. random length of time and reasons and there didn't seem to be any way of making hold of holding that accountability really really firmly and placing it in the hands of head teachers so we convened a structure we created a structure in which it wasn't just me it was me and a group of other of other heads we created a structure in which the accountability was squarely with all of us to ensure i hate the term corporate responsibility but actually that we had a kind of county wide responsibility for every child that moved from our schools 
and that we all knew what was happening and that we were all invested in them either being temporarily out of school or returning to school and supporting them along that journey. And it, it was never perfect, but it did move on. And, um, and, and we moved from a situation in which there was probably open hostility towards me as a, as a head teacher of a service that was basically saying, no, we're not taking these children anymore, towards a, a sense of there being a partnership and that we're, we're all here to, um, to ensure that, that these families get, a, get access to what they're entitled to, mm. which is their children in, in a school. Mm. And it's one of the things that I really love about your practice and that I really notice is that with each breadcrumb, with each development and learning, you kind of take it with you. And I, I remember, <laughs> I can remember when you were head teacher, interim head teacher of the uh, large um, school uh, just outside of Bristol, um I can remember you saying how because you had uh you had your son who he was mm. very small and I remember you saying I can't there's going to be some meetings where I can't that I can't go to and I can remember you saying I'm just going to make it policy that if you don't need to go to a meeting you know there'll be some meetings that are essential mm. but there are other meetings after school that might run on till half past five or six o'clock and if you don't if you don't need to go to it if there's another way that you can catch up with it or then mm. you don't have to go. And I can mm. remember that it was like whispers across mm. <laughs> the local area that, oh, my goodness, a head teacher has offered this level of flexibility. And I can't help but think that it must come from, you know, the relationship between inclusion and flexibility, that if we mm. want women to lead, if we want, you know, women who've got young children to lead, you know, actually what we choose to prioritise in our policies, mm. it, 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 there's a direct link. Um, and I always admired and respected how you carried that through and it wasn't always popular. But I guess I was, I was mm. keen to kind of hear your reflections on that now. Mm. I think that the level of inflexibility that you see when you work in the people referral service is astonishing. The way that school systems really mobilise themselves, that the school system has mobilised itself around being incredibly inflexible. Certainly at the time, that's how it felt. Um, and, and I used to see parents um, really trying to work around the, yeah, but no, but not if it's like that. But yeah, you have to do it like this, but it has to be within this time. But you can't, it's like schools are so inflexible. And so I think that, that, I, that the change had to come from me not being inflexible the, the change was actually internal like I have to be flexible with myself in order to be able to lead other people in thinking that their possibilities for flexibility for themselves are there because otherwise you have this trickle-down effect where I'm inflexible with myself I'm a parent I'm parenting or co-parenting a child um, with a lot of response taking on a lot of responsibility for that care and being a head teacher if I'm going to be inflexible with myself and never give myself any time, then I'm going to be constantly feeding that energy, that inflexibility into my staff, into the teaching body. And when those teachers meet parents who are really struggling to get purchase on the system, 
those teachers will meet those parents with inflexibility because that's what they're receiving. And, you know, you see that time and time again. You see people saying, but I've said you need to wear those shoes and I've told you about that tie and I have said that they need to be on time. And this this constant kind of almost (laughs) at times inhumane level of inflexibility feels like it trickles down from the top. So in, in many ways, it was an experiment in dare I say that I'm not going to be available at the end of the day. Dare I, dare I admit that there are mornings when I'm going to be dropping my son off before I get to school. Dare I see how many people would also want that level of flexibility. Mm. Okay, I do dare. And what happens is people say, so grateful that you talked about meetings because I'm really struggling at the moment I've just come back from maternity leave and I would I just really really appreciate you talking about how it's difficult to kind of feel like you can get home on time when you've got a kid in nursery and Mm -hmm. I just really appreciate it they asking me for any time off no they're just telling me that they appreciate hearing (laughs) of an experience that sits somewhere next to the experience they have of parenting And then what happens is that men who have been um, told in this environment that they definitely don't have any right to be asking for any time start saying, would it be okay if I went to my child's uh, performance, a year five assembly at the end of term? And then what happens is people say, I'm wondering if it's going to be okay for me to take compassionate leave for somebody that's like, they weren't related to me. Like, I really know that I need to say that because because I know that we're only really allowed to go on compassionate leave or go to a funeral if somebody's related to me. If you then start saying yes to that, their level of flexibility just increases, just increases, just increases. So people begin to say things like, I'll cover for you or so-and-so in our department wants to do this, but we've worked it out in our team that they can do that. They can come in late and we've got this. There's something about the relationship between us as leaders owning it and trusting in the autonomy of other people to also lead it in their own lives and trusting that that will become kind of self-organizing system. And that leads me to where I am now, which is every day having conversations with groups of, 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 of leaders who say things like, yeah, but we can't, we can't change the time of that meeting because that's when SLT is. And helping them recognise that that's just a structure that we've decided upon Mm. that isn't necessarily serving the greatest happiness of the greatest number. Or the idea that young people could not possibly manage to have two teachers. We're fixated by this idea that if we give them two teachers who work part time, that something will happen to their young brains. Mm. Loosening that idea and opening up those new neural pathways that allow teachers and leaders to say, oh, maybe we could be more flexible with how we staff or populate, you know, year six or year seven. Um, so it's, yeah, it's the same piece of work, but I do think it starts, it's, it's internal work. Mm. And I noticed the relationship between systems and processes and policy and people, <laughs> like ordinary people. And I sometimes really have a resistance to diversity, equity and inclusion work that is, that is, you know, printed out or, you know, really fixed or there hasn't been real thought about how to kind of structure it because because those challenges present differently 
depending on what's you know what the legacy of the school is and what has happened and mm-hmm. who you've taken over from and what came before and you know I've watched you kind of almost give power back to schools give autonomy back to school. it used to terrify me because I had to learn to do that whereas you all have always had that you know people would always the students I would notice would really feel the weight of oh, I can I've been entrusted to do this you know I've got to write from the perspective of Juliet or I've got to write from the perspective of Mercutio and really feel the weight of it um and I think it's you know you kind of let go you know mm. you, you let go of of that control and I I was thinking about um what supports you in your own professional development and your own spiritual practice mm. you, know, you give give a lot mm. <laughs> you support yeah. a lot so how do you maintain your spiritual practice or your professional development so with with increasing uh ease and confidence I think when I first started teaching not not very well although the spiritual practice as a reflective practice is something that has existed from from the beginning so so you and I used to go to the um I want to say the local hostelry (laughs) I feel like I need to place it in the Victorian era we used to go to the pub on a Friday with a group of a group of teachers after work would go and we would and it wasn't actually about going to the pub for a drink it felt a lot like it was about going to engage in this reflective practice I mean it was hours of and then this happened and then this happened and we we would notice we would notice structural inequity and we would talk about it for up to five hours every single Friday with a group of other like-minded people there's something really important about that that isn't given space in schools and and often probably needs to take place outside of the school. It's interesting that we were located next, we were kind of adjacent, but never in. Um, And and almost, you know, from where we were sitting, we had the vantage point of the community, of the school. Um, And we just engaged in practice and in that reflective practice. And that is my spiritual practice is that I reflect. And I'm less reliant now on talking it out and I'm less reliant on trying to understand it because I think at the beginning of my career, I wanted to understand it and I wanted to almost fight against it. Um, it being there is a structural inequity and we need to do something. So very much focused on the kind of action line of things rather than focused on the feeling line of, of things. So it, um, so I'm just talking about a coaching model that I use or that I often have in my head is that our 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 thoughts create our feelings create our actions create our results and so um i have i have less of a commitment to um to to re to reprogramming my thinking i'm much more connected to to reprogramming my my feeling so i start with what feeling do i want to have then work backwards to the kinds of thoughts that i'm going to need to have the kind of beliefs that i'm going to need to employ in order to move forward with those feelings because I know about the relationship between my feelings and my actions and this practice uh, 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 in terms of of it being a spiritual practice takes the form of of a lot of journaling so I've been journaling for years um, and I do I would call it mindset journaling because I am focused on what am I thinking what am I feeling how am I going to act and what the results of that be and I would say pretty much daily for the last 
14 years, I either write that, I mean, I don't always write it down, but I have that in my head. Um, I'm able to launch myself out of bed and know exactly why there is a a feeling that is not going to lead to anything productive in that day. So Mm -hmm. I journal and I walk. And again, increasingly, I mean, I, I used to sort of do a lot of those things because I was committed to the action of exercise. Now I'm committed to the um, to the movement because I process things. I process a lot of information through moving my body in space, and I trust that process so much that I know that the answer to most of the things that I am dealing with will come through a commitment to moving myself in space and time. So I walk to sort things out, a journal to sort things out. Um, And in the last few years, have taken on um, Kundalini yoga practice, in part to sort of support both of those things as well. It has the same effect of providing a space in which I don't need to reflect through the medium of thinking about thinking, but just through the medium of of feeling feelings and moving moving air through my body you know moving my moving my body in space and it's it's quite profound actually the kind of changes the differences that i notice in the earlier my earlier commitment to to making change in the world was so much about the about trying to change the way that i thought about things or trying to understand things logically and as a child sort of back to my origin story as a child I was always I always felt it was really important as a black girl in rural Devon to be understood to be somebody that was intelligent and thoughtful and thought things out and really kind of was logical and I would present things sequentially in a way that everybody could understand so it's been quite a it's been quite a break from that self-concept to to not rely on that to actually be quite peaceful about being non-sequential illogical to rely on the spiritual dimension of my existence to guide me to trust in processes to even know that I might not know the answer to something I'm working on it might not come to me for months and months and months and months but it will come and when it comes I will take that breadcrumb and we'll be on to the next thing. It's taken ages to feel a level of peace with that. And now I'm so at peace with it that I'm excited about the pause. Like, mm-hmm. oh, something's going to come. I don't know what it is yet, but I trust the process so, so wholly that um, it, you know, the void becomes quite exciting. Mm-hmm. And is there self-care in that? Because I think working in equity work you know we all come with a positionality is there a a means of kind of protecting yourself or what's your approach to self-care I I guess um in the same way that I'm not so sure about work-life balance I'm not so sure about the division between what we do and then needing to protect ourselves from what we do So um, being congruent is the care and 
And that means allowing whatever is is arising to be okay. So one day I might be doing a training and I might I might be talking about the murder of Stephen Lawrence and whatever impulse is what other uh, what whatever other impulses are alive or I'm alive to on that day might influence the extent to which it really impacts on my emotions makes me feel a certain way but I don't feel like I need to repair that I don't feel like I need to repair that upset like I don't need to seek a solution or a or a I don't need to go a yeah I don't need to find a specific form of coaching or debriefing or mentorship to help me deal with that because the congruence is allowing that to exist in that moment because another day I will deliver the same training and I won't feel that way because I'll be there'll be a whole other set of of uh, of impulses that surround that day that I'm delivering that training on and I'm talking about Stephen Lawrence that are existing in that moment so for me it's more about congruence and you know which is why I'm not so keen on work life balance it's like it's all one thing the care is in the accepting that it's all one thing and what that doesn't mean <laughs> is that I don't seek uh, support because I do. I have coaching. I have, I'm part of multiple coaching groups in which I receive coaching and I, um, I have lots of uh, mentorship and support through my Kundalini practice. I have a, have a fitness instructor who's also a yoga teacher, who's also a spiritual teacher. I have lots of different people who I'm surrounded by who, who kind of, um, who make up that tapestry of of support but they're not an antidote to the work does that make sense mm. because you i don't know whether it's because you live in denmark so i have a sense that you would have done this if you were living <laughs> in wherever you were but you really work internationally mm. so if i'm doing a program of yours you know somebody will pop up from germany or somebody will pop up from the states or you know there is a um an international reach that you have in terms of your work and the way that it's respected and how seen and known you are um internationally and i i you know there's something very modest about you in the way even the way you answer these questions um (laughs) that is really uh i don't know i feel like there's a a need to i don't know underpin it with the amount of networking that takes i think um not networking in a kind of marketized way because I haven't really seen you do that but in terms of relationships Mm. you know very deep earthed relationships but I wanted to ask you about the public and private sphere Mm. actually because in the last um podcast we did you said that they you you um receive wisdom I guess from different channels in your life you said it might be something my son says or it might be something that I hear on the radio or see on the see in the street or something I hear in the shop or some coaching that I've had um, or something that you've read or researched and, and and I I see that you it's it influences you it's allow you allow it to influence you um, and I would call that the what you do with it you described it in the first session as kind of synthesizing it mm. for audience and using that which I would describe as a kind of postmodern ethnography Mm. as an approach Mm. um 
and I wondered how what your relationship was to the public and the private sphere because you're actually ironically a really private person mm, yeah <laughs> I wondered how you yeah navigated uh, those um boundaries yeah I, th I think it's uh it's an interesting thing that you say about the, the way that I work with I work internationally I work with lots of different people um and and often I feel like I I foster really deep relationships with people that I don't know very quickly uh, I, I can go quite deep with people very quickly and and it is not um it's it is never out of integrity so the depth is not undermined by actually the absence of information that most people will have about my personal life it's like I go very deep and people can know pretty much nothing about me mm. and I I think it's interesting what you know when you talk about ethnography and, and I think about I think about I think about stories and storytelling and how other people have been so um influential in telling the stories of people who have been colonized whether it you know and if I just think about some of the identities of being being a woman and having our stories told for us and having our lives you know explained for us mm. um being a black woman having our stories told and depicted by people who were not black women uh being a black person having your life explained back to you through the colonizer's lens mm. and reclaiming the storytelling positioning narrative from the from the mouths from the very mouths of the people whose narrative it is is also giving yourself the opportunity to choose the bits of the narrative that you share just like every other story has been partial and imperfect just like the colonizer story has been partial and imperfect I give myself license to tell a partial and imperfect story about myself, which means that some people will know the absolute depth of pain I experience on a school playground on my first day of school, being humiliated by others and being called the N-word and the exposure and the vulnerability. Like, but some people know that. But in reality, everybody that I've ever talked to in any training I've ever done, which is hundreds of people, know that story about me and instantly feel like there's a connection to Angie there's something about her that is deeply personal and painful that I know about her and and that story is never going to be undermined just because I don't tell them who I live with uh, it's just that that's the piece of the narrative that, that that they have access to that's the piece that I choose to share that's the piece of my world that goes into the public domain to serve a purpose that's bigger than just we're going to be friends and, and it reminds me of that wonderful, um, that wonderful line when Zora Neale Hurston talks about how it feels to be coloured me, where she, where she allows people to go a piece of the way with her. And that's what I feel like, the, that's what the relationship is between the personal and the private, is, sorry, the personal and the public, is that in, in the public domain in my work life, I allow people to go a piece of the way with me. And I choose the piece of the way. I write the piece of the way. The piece of the way shifts. Nobody is ever going to know the full piece of the way because it, I, I have a bag of stories that I will use to form 
the basis of the narrative that we are using today to explore the, the issue that we're talking about today. And very, very, very few people are interested to go a piece of the way in my personal life because it's my personal life. And those are all stories that are in my personal life, unprocessed, unfiltered, that don't serve a purpose yet for other people because I haven't worked out what they are and I haven't made sense of them. And so for that, for that kind of that personal piece remains for me an area that um, I enjoy them. I enjoy the, the magic of it being unfiltered and unprocessed space. It's like, I, I know, you know, me and your friends, obviously really good friends beyond this uh, podcast. And so you have a window into that, dom- that domain of my, of my, um, of my world. And I'm completely comfortable with, with everything that's explored in that domain, but it's a, uh, it has a different purpose um, and, and it's not one that usefully serves um, other people. Mm. That's fascinating. I was thinking, when I was thinking about you as ethnographer and kind of, you know, you've always had a commitment to story as a means, a counter story or, you know, a backstory, uh, even when we were teaching together, you were very interested in the backstories of characters. And um, I wonder how do you, how do you choose what to let in? You know, when you're being, um, when you're open to influence, how do you select what to let in? And how do you um, kind of switch off, switch out, move away from, the uh, influences you don't want. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, and I think this has changed over time, which is which is probably why there's less need for a demarcation between what I do and self-care and also less need for a conscious demarcation between what's personal and what's professional. Um, because I actually let everything in I'm pretty, um, I, I pretty indiscriminately let everything in. I mean, in, to the extent that I'll read any old nonsense argument on Twitter and think, oh, okay, that's an interesting perspective. Or, oh, they think that. And sometimes I might be moved to kind of type something uh, either aggressively or passively aggressively back. But I don't, you know, that, that would be kind of involving myself in it. So I tend to let everything in. And then a bit like, you know, the trail of breadcrumbs, a bit like the, the kind of just gathering, we're gathering, we're gathering. I just trust that the right stuff will filter through and become something that becomes relevant. And so I don't need to consciously exclude anything. Things don't really bother me. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I can't, I was saying to a group of people the other day, I was training and I was saying, I, I really can't think of anything that you would say, any of you, that would offend me because I don't take personal offence. It is all part of this tapestry that we're creating of opinions and of views and of, and of, of diverse lives and experiences. And it, it has no, it doesn't impact on my personal feelings of anything. It's just data. And with that data, we can use bits of it to create a more interesting story. We can, we can challenge it. We can find it irritating a little bit, but it, doesn't need to get purchase on us so I've unhooked myself from 
most of that in in terms of that kind of filtering out you know the the, the way that the media presents anything in this area of work that we're in in diversity equity inclusion is so binary and and is so inflamed and is so sort of sensationalized that it you would were emotive and kind of yeah it, it would you would imagine it would be really hard to detach oneself from from everything that's going on actually I find it really easy I think oh it's data how interesting that's happening <laughs> which of course doesn't necessarily then always happen in my personal life where I still get really irritated by the way that somebody fails to serve me food that's hot or something in a restaurant <laughs> I still have all of that that level of normal imperfection and irritation about very ordinary things people driving too slowly in front of me but on the kind of grand scale of things I, I I'm pretty unhooked I think from that <laughs> And I, I've got one last question, which uh, is from the first uh, part of the podcast, which was about aesthetics. <laughs> because you have, I'm going to describe it as a commitment, mm. as a commitment and duty to aesthetics. That it's, I can remember when, whenever you moved offices, if we, you know, we regularly had to move offices every year as assistant heads or as vice principals. And I would it would take me the better part of a year to make it habitable um, and literally <laughs> within, within hours you had been to Ikea there was some kind of stick yeah the sticks I remember you gave me <laughs> your sticks and some really key pieces from your office and I see that in your beautiful workbooks and everything that you produce is um to such a high standard and it really matters to you mm. and I wondered if you recognize that in your in yourself and um yeah any reflections on <laughs> I absolutely have an, and will always have an enduring commitment to aesthetics and uh I think it's I think it's quite remarkable that you of all people with your beautiful house took a year to do your sort your office out in in work I'm kind of the opposite so I there, there, there are a couple of things that are they they are linked, but uh, the first is that I realised at, at one point that I have I have my own values. I have a set of values that I'm really committed to: excellence being one of them, wisdom being another, and beauty being another. And I needed to articulate that probably about 15 years ago because I kept thinking, "Why are you being so obsessive about the way this looks?" And when I realised that it was just something that I really hold dear, beauty. I just you know, can accept myself for that. Um, so I like things to, I have a commitment to, particularly in education, to things being beautiful and being aesthetically pleasing. And I was really affronted by the idea that in education we would get some horrid photocopy of something or some kind of, you know, when the photocopies would come and they would even be have that black line down the side nobody really kept nobody really took any care or attention or things are wonky on the page or a stapled booklet everything in black and white everything in aerial that that dreadful period where things were in comic sans <laughs> oh it was just so depressing to me that I was I'd ended up in a sector that was sort of defined itself almost kind of staunchly committed to things being really quite ugly and there's something about that sort of 
we don't need it to look nice. We just need to get on with it. That happens in education that makes me want to flip it on its head and say, well, how, what would happen if we did make it look nice? What would we be able to get on with if we did make it look nice? If we started with the premise that we want wisdom, excellence and beauty in all things, how, how, how much different would our work be? And so I, um, and I have a, my sister-in-law is a, is a, is a designer, an interior designer. And I was so jealous was always so jealous we were the same age going into our careers at the same time she would spend her time on um, bond street and you know p- going into nice restaurants and i'd spend my time in sort of stinky staff rooms in buildings that had asbestos roofs and it felt like a real affront to my senses to be living that existence so i i posed myself the question what would happen if we brought more beauty back into this sector and have committed myself wholeheartedly to ensuring that everything I produce brings that because I do think it calms people down because I do think that people feel looked after when you give them things that look nice. I think that staff feel like this presentation is going to be brilliant because just look at that first slide. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. Like I want to dive in. Everything calms down and slows down when you make things look nice because you're telling people that you really care about their experience and so the other point on the nice offices the enduring nature of the nice offices is that schools are have have as much as i love them they're the hardest places i've ever worked you know they are they are pretty brutal in many in many ways on the central nervous system, just the impressions of hundreds and hundreds of people all day, every day. And a leadership role in a school is is the most intense role, a thing I've ever done. I mean, I've almost like parent, head teacher, I'm not quite sure I'm always going with head teachers harder. (laughs) It's like, it's such a difficult role. And I needed to show myself the level of care and attention and nurturing and create an environment around me that said, you're okay in here though. So when, when everything looks nice, when it's all beautiful, when there's nice things on the desk and I have my nice mug, I'm doing, that's, that's caring for my central nervous system. That's making, that's saying to me, I really care about you and I want you to be able to do this job really well and I'm going to look after you. So we're going to create a space for you in here that is going to enable you t- to do that really well. Mm. And I watched you do that. You know, I watched you put in, you know, when there was a hideous setting throughout the school and you would have set three that was bursting at the seams. You know, I watched you put tiny little pegs for all of the handouts for the children. Yeah. And I watched them notice it and I watched children who were in alternative provision who had to go across the road Mm. Um, but when they came over for lunch they stood tall they all smelled really nice because there had been an investment in how do we look how do we smell how do we present ourselves Mm. you know and I you know I jest about it and I joke uh, but I, I actually think you know, I really, it really resonates with what you're saying because there's part of it that's about belonging, mm. worth, mm. and that, you know, that something's worth investing in and valuable. Mm. And I've always really, uh, I, th- I think it, it, it has huge influence on on how things are, but no, it is a, you know, you don't let that go. You know? <laughs> and I won't. Don't let that stuff go. It's the hill I'm going to die on. 
<laughs> the aesthetics hill it really is um okay I, those are all i've got lots of other questions <laughs> that's uh that's all the questions <gasps> oh well that was such a lovely conversation thank you claire thanks for bringing these beautiful questions and also challenging me to uh think about the past and continue to muse on the trail of breadcrumbs i really appreciated this conversation thank you so much Thank you for listening to the Being Luminary podcast. I would love to hear your thoughts on the podcast, so please do leave us a review. Each month, I will be picking one of our reviewers to get a free laser coaching session as a thank you. And remember, if you know a luminary or an everyday thought leader who would benefit from listening to this podcast or who would love to be featured on the cast, then please do share it with them. This episode was presented by me, Angie Brown. Original music is by Martin Ostwick. The series is edited by Big Tent Media and produced by Emily Crosby Media.